Hello, and welcome to Accountability Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. So today we're speaking with Tom Coleman from River North, and uh, the topic is procurement in the government. So a uh, topic we really haven't brought up here much, and we want to kind of expand our, uh, our base here of listeners and subjects. So we're going to talk about pro- procurement innovation and uh, just how things work in federal, state, and local government procurement. So let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the podcast. All right, so we're back here with a new subject for our show here we really haven't talked too much about, and that's government procurement. So uh, I think this will be something folks are interested in beyond the accounting audit world, something a little different. And uh, we have a great guest today to help us with that, Mr. Tom Coleman. Tom, how are you doing today? Doing excellent. Yourself? Doing great. Awesome. So let's just start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Tom. You know, what, a little bit about your background, what you've done, what do you do now? Absolutely. Well, currently I'm the chief operating officer and general counsel of a government contractor called River North that does IT and policy work. But more important to this discussion is what I did in my federal career. Mm -hmm. So I started out in procurement for about two years before the financial crisis hit. And then I went over to Treasury to help run the Troubled Asset Relief Program, Mm -hmm. where my role there was to help administer an other transaction authority, which is specifically a program that has statutory authorization to procure goods and services outside of the bounds of the federal acquisition regulation. So that's been the base of my contracting background. And then I went into a variety of other program roles before ultimately being CFO and head of agency for the federal financing bank. So I definitely have that finance um, and accounting perspective to add into my procurement experience as well. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here today. Thank you so much. All right, well, let's jump in here. So, you know, as I mentioned, AGA, we're probably mostly accountants, auditors, you know, contractors, all that good stuff. So mm-hmm. not as many of us are, con- you know, contracting professionals. So, you know, what, some of the things we learned today, how do you think that could kind of help us out in our career, just knowing more about understanding procurement better? Absolutely. I will say this to anyone, whether in the finance, um, a mission area, anywhere else, Knowing procurement and being knowledgeable about procurement opens up career doors. Um, There's not a lot of people who have this skill set. And I can speak from my own experience. Part of where I was able to develop in my career was being pulled over as the government procurement guy when the financial crisis hit. And I was invited to meetings that I should have had no part in whatsoever (laughs) three years out of school. And when you're the person who is responsible for guiding your office to get the goods and services they need, it really opens up access. Beyond that, it helps your team in its day-to-day. When you have good contractors, as I'm sure all of your folks who have been on the government side know, the work becomes so much easier. And good contractors start with good contracts, which start with good procurements. So the more that you're able to understand the base information about procurement, shape what you need to be successful in your mission, the better those outcomes are going to be. And then from a networking perspective, I always kind of liken it to Red and Shawshank Redemption, right? Mm -hmm. If you're the person who knows how to get what other people need, Mm -hmm. it's going to be an amazing networking tool, especially in agencies where you have political appointees who are often walking into an environment where 
procurement is that one thing that's completely foreign uh, to them. So those are some ways that I think it has application to all uh, government employees. And then finance specifically, you know, budget and procurement have a very close working relationship. So it helps kind of smooth some of the communications issues that might occur with trying to determine availability of funds, those type of requests that typically come over to finance from procurement. And it also makes finance professionals really good at procurement. There are a lot of things like cost analysis, price analysis, market research that really need finance skills, finance skills that may not be as widely found in the procurement workforce. So I absolutely think there is there is a need and some some cross-functional um, possibilities for those uh, with a finance background. Sure. Yeah, and I would assume, you know, if you're an auditor, you need to understand how procurement is supposed to work. If you're out there auditing things, if you're in the accounting office, you need to know, you know, the rules around. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the the FAR comes up quite a lot, even if you're not in procurement. So mm-hmm. I know that's a fact. So speaking of which, I mean, how do you learn more about procurement if this is not your everyday task? Just pull out the FAR, start reading it, page oh, to yeah. page, cover to cover. <laughs> what, what do you do? You know, it's funny. I, I was cleaning out my basement, and I just threw out four physical copies of the FAR from hmm. early in my career yeah. that were like two pounds a piece. So it's wow. good it's all on the Internet now. Yeah. Um, a couple of ways. Uh, audit is pretty easy, as you mentioned. You know, try and get involved in procurement audits. The great thing about those are every agency has them, and they're always ongoing year after year. And there's a really good hands-on learning you get through going through a file and you know, understanding how each piece of that procurement comes together, what's expected, best practices. The other best way is to get involved as a contracting officer's representative. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know what that is, that is the non-procurement individual on in a program office on the mission side that understands the business of what needs to be done from a contractual perspective and works with the contracting team um, to get that done, to get them the information they need to have an effective contract. It's a great reason because part of what you have to do is get some training, which under the new training rules, there isn't that much of a difference of the training you need to be a core and the training that you need to be a procurement specialist going forward. And um, it also gets you that additional exposure um, to just learn by doing as well. Yeah, I mean, the core is what to do, but also what you can't do, right? All these rules, right? (laughs) You know, absolutely. And I think we'll get to that a little bit later. But, you know, there's that perception that procurement is all about what you can't do. And a lot of the innovation going on is to try and dispel that myth a little bit and really kind of educate people on all the things you you can and are allowed to do as well. Yeah, fair enough. So a little sidebar here, but, you know, our audience is everybody. It's federal, state, local. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we, as I said, the FAR is a big guide for the federal government. Um, how does it think, How do things work in state and local? Do you have any insight on that? Um, there is a lot of similarity with state and local. Um, for one, there are actual legal parallels that impose federal or very close to federal standards on state and local governments. Uh, one example I can think of is the Uniform Grants Guidance. Okay. So state and local governments are almost always federal grant recipients at some level. And while the uniform guidance allows deviation to follow their own procurement policies, there are a lot of mandated must-do items that tack pretty closely to the FAR, as you would imagine. There are also some other um, 
touch points. So for example, certain federal supply schedules like GSA schedules can be purchased on by state from off of from state and local governments. So you get some nexus of needing to understand the federal space mm-hmm. there a little bit as well. Um, and one thing that is different and for state and in some cases local governments, what can be actually more difficult from a procurement perspective is while the federal government has expiring fiscal year money, 49 out of 50 states have balanced budget amendments. Mm-hmm. So um, actually, you know, making certain that financing is there and how offices are impacted by other purchases across the state can actually make it a lot more difficult on the state side, but from an operational perspective, you're looking at the same goals. You know, you want to promote competition, get best value for the government, and there's also policy considerations like small business engagement, cybersecurity, sustainable procurement, a lot of parallels between um, all different levels of government. Okay, so there's kind of a same energy going into all these different you know, air, uh, levels of government, not just the the federal kind of, I guess it, it influences a lot of the state and local, basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, so another topic here, uh, I guess kind of a hot topic over the last few years is this idea of procurement innovation. Yep. So, you know, simple enough, what does that mean? Yep. <laughs> what is procurement innovation? <laughs> well, I think we are coming out of what I, I want to call the bot phase. Uh-huh. And I, for the last five, seven years, there's been a lot of talk about automation being the crux of procurement innovation, mm. uh, finding RPA bots that can simplify manual processes that are highly repetitive, and, and that's been fantastic. So mm. an example that a lot of agencies have done is automating a contractor responsibility bot, whereas a human would have to go to four different websites to enter in a vendor to see if they were suspended, debarred, right. had any adverse action against them creating an automation that can do that all for them. So that was, you know, really impactful in a lot of ways. It allowed the shift of focus to high value work, but I think it was really just scratching the surface of what innovation can be. And so I think, you know, from a technology standpoint, there's a lot of opportunity, but I really see that being in the field of data literacy, improving the data capabilities of the procurement workforce to meet some of the new challenges that they're facing and new mandates from the administration. And then the second piece is actually customer experience and thinking about how procurement offices interact with their external parties, with industry, with vendors. And there are a few agencies, um, state is one that I know that is pursuing some uh, innovation in that area. So tell us a little bit more data literacy. What, What do we mean by that? So data literacy is just kind of an umbrella term because there are so many data challenges in procurement. And the number one um, recommendation I would have for procurement offices is to bring in skills if they don't already have it or, or bring in training to improve kind of the data literacy standards, how, how the offices work about with data, how they think about data, how they visualize data. And I'll give a couple of examples. Um, So we're going to talk probably about sustainable procurement a little bit later, but one of the most recent developments is a push towards having many federal contractors disclose their greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. And there's the idea that's been put out by the administration circulating in Congress and uh, been put out for public comment about whether or not these 
criteria about greenhouse gas emissions, other environmental criteria, could ultimately be used in evaluating procurements. So that's that that's a big ask and a big lift for procurement folks to now understand how to deal with possibly pretty considerable amounts of data um, in an area that they're not as familiar with. And that's going to probably require tools. It's going to require processes. And it's going to need folks that understand how to work with data and visualize it with a variety of different products that exist both in the government and, and external to um, work with, with that. And I think there's also a lot of agencies that are understanding that their procurement pipeline doesn't have the best visibility into it, that usually procurement offices are relying on a variety of disparate systems, you know, an, an accounting system, a contract writing system, um, a payment system to compile all the data that they're collecting and that they need to disseminate on contracts. And a lot of times those systems don't talk to each other. And there are a lot of, especially with low-code, no-code technologies, there are a lot of lightweight platforms that can aggregate that data, simplify it, and give you end-to-end visualizations on your entire portfolio, which helps for better planning, better executive briefing, and you know, very similar to kind of that bot phase, mm-hmm. really reduces a lot of time spent manually cobbling together data from multiple sources. Yeah, and I'm seeing the same thing in all, all the walks of life here, CFO offices. I mm-hmm. mean, I feel like the bots came in and they kind of rushed in and we've been doing a lot with bots, but it's, you know, the, the whole... BI and business intelligence dashboards. I mean, it's been here for a while, but it kind of got glossed over, jumped over, and mm-hmm. everybody got excited about bots and AI. But I'm like, wait a second, we still need a lot more <laughs> dashboards, visuals, just making life easier, aggregating this data that's in a thousand different systems. Mm-hmm. That's still a huge need, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and there's always going to be a place for automation. Um, and the great thing is there are a lot of ways to combine automation and visualization. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of the security challenges that agencies had early on with bots when they were making one-off bots mm-hmm. outside of kind of a unified platform was that the technical debt and cost of maintaining all of these, keeping them in line with security provisions um, was was almost outweighing in some cases uh, the value that, that was derived from it. So yeah. I think there are solutions that do a really good job of combining automation visualization. Yeah. So, and you also mentioned uh, customer experience. What are some innovations there, you think? Yeah, so I think the big innovation is how the government communicates and provides information to industry. Mm. And as I mentioned, uh, Department of State is one agency that comes to mind. They recently had, um, I think, an RFI, maybe an RFP for solutions to do this. But the current state is typically most agencies have a what they call procurement forecast Mm -hmm. on their website, which is often a giant PDF, a giant Excel document, um, of a lot of information on their existing contracts, maybe what what they know they're going to purchase in the future. But if you've gone to, to a lot of them, you'll see their data quality issues. It's not really uh, digestible if you don't have existing context mm-hmm. um, of what some of those descriptions mean. And it's really, really hard to navigate and provides little certainty as to you know whether the existing contracts are going to be repurchased, what truly is competitive versus going to go back to a sole source. 
And so agencies are grappling with this, especially as this administration and administrations before it are harping on the fact that it, government needs to be more accessible to small businesses mm-hmm. and not just the small businesses that are $20 million who have been navigating the, the waters for a while, but people who want to come into the market, oftentimes you know, from underserved communities that don't have a lot of resources. So what could customer experience be there? It could be an interactive system that takes in data from industry um, about their preferences, about their capabilities, that then you know does tagging of their own data and is able to, in an automated fashion, allow for easier navigation. It would allow for push notifications that are configured to the interests of their different industry members. And additionally, you know, when you're creating all those data exchanges, you could solve another fundamental problem that government procurement has, which is improving their market research. Mm-hmm. You know, government tries really, really hard to create this database of, you know, what is my market out there? And there's the symbiotic relationship when you create the necessary technology to allow for like interactive data exchanges between industry and government to not only provide industry what it needs and that informational access, but also in return, it would feed the government a really, really effective market research database for their own purposes as well. Yeah, I mean, I've even seen, you know, some changes the last few years. It's the Department of State doing some innovative stuff. But yeah, mm-hmm. even like RFIs, I mean, it just seems like a really old-fashioned way of gathering information. And the way that's been done is just, you know, ask a company to write this 10-page, you know, response to all mm-hmm. these things. And a lot of folks are just going to kind of a questionnaire format now. Well, there's different ways to gather the info. Yeah. I mean, I like that. Things are moving that way because, I don't know, it just seems like sort of old, a lot of old-fashioned ways to gather data still happening. Yeah, absolutely. And, so. you know, as, as you know, there's a cost to companies to right. respond to all of that. Right. And uh, competition is hurt as a result of it. You know, a lot of times that companies have to choose which RFI am I going to respond to, which dictates which RFP, yeah. you know, am I going to respond to. And as you said, so much of that information that's collected is the same from RFI it to is. RFI to RFI. Yeah. Yeah, I'd wish. That, yeah, I'd love if the government could just consolidate so much of this information. <laughs> that goes for so many different things. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so those are some of, some of the techie innovations potentially, but you know, there's also talk about process change, process innovation. What are some things you're seeing there? Absolutely, I, I think there is just as much opportunity in process innovation, if not more, um, because the bar to implement is a lot lower um, in terms of when you think of procurement innovation. And it starts with this understanding or dispelling a myth that we, we talked briefly about earlier, which is, you know, procurement is all about what you can't do. Mm-hmm. And the FAR itself actually has a clause saying, hey, if we tell you if we don't tell you that you are not allowed to do something, the default assumption is that you are. Hmm. And um, there have been a lot of agencies who have done good work here. First and foremost is uh, DHS and their procurement innovation lab and a great resource for anyone at the federal, state, or local level, and, and it's all public, is uh, what they call the, the PILL uh, Boot Camp Workbook. Okay. And uh, just as a little additional context, for both government and industry, the PILL runs periodic boot camps, free to register. It's some of the best one-day training you could ever find on procurement. And, you know, they don't teach you about how to be, you know, end-to-end a procurement officer, a contracting officer, they, they teach you about these process innovations. Mm-hmm. And what they've been able to do is cut procurement times for large procurements especially by more than 50%. They can reduce protest risk. 
Um, and the reason I say this is great for state and local too is because there's so much similarity in what these these guidelines are. So they have a whole list of them. I'll just give one example, um, which I think is one of the most impactful, and that's this concept of advisory down selects. Hmm. No one that I ever heard of was doing these before 10 years ago. Right. And it's when you have a large procurement and you're going to get 60 responses. And historically, these procurements sometimes took two years to award because yeah. you have to read through every response. You have to make sure that every proposal is treated the exact same way. Yeah. And the reality is, and having been on the other side of it, you know, when you get 60 proposals, you really probably only have five or six that are you know, in that top tier. Yeah. But the problem is, is there wasn't really a clear red line that you could adjudicate them so you have to kind of go through all of these other steps what an advisory down select does is you create multiple kind of tiers of review starting where you ask for a little bit of information maybe past performance Mm -hmm. only Mm -hmm. and so it reduces the burden on industry because they don't have to submit everything at once at that point you can look at whatever that first criteria is and say you want to know what you know this half of, of respondents they're not going to win most likely And the FAR doesn't let you kick them out on a single criteria. What it does allow you to do is send them a letter saying, hey, based on what we've already looked at, it is highly improbable that you will win award when we consider everything. So So you could go to the next phase, but you're not likely to be in the top 10 or whatever, so... Exactly, and and this has really been well received by industry. I've seen that a lot recently, yeah. I've seen those, those kind of things come out quite frequently. Yeah, and the PILDA's industry reviews, like, how, how do you like this innovation? And industry typically likes it a lot because they're saving money. They're saving yeah. their time. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it's such a time-intensive process. I mean, I don't know if mm-hmm. government realizes how how much time and effort it's put into writing these things on the company sides, you know, the contractor side. Mm-hmm. So something like this, I mean, yeah, I think a lot of companies really do prefer because, yeah, I mean, let's get, you know, give me the two or three phases to get through and if i don't get through that one then i i'm I'm done basically i mean i would have liked to but if i didn't at least i know i don't need to put any more effort into this thing and from the government perspective you know when when someone voluntarily drops out yeah they lose their standing to protest first of all but there's also kind of that emotional piece of it too right Mm -hmm. when when a company has spent a year or two and you know proposal budgets can be upwards of six figures for large proposals and and when they've sunk that cost you know, the cost of protesting on even a weak claim by comparison becomes a lot more reasonable than when there's there's a smaller investment and, you know, it's it's also disincentivizing continuing on the process to the end where you would actually have standing to submit a protest. So that's like the number one example. And there's, there's so many different ones that the pill puts out there. And I know other agencies are starting their own too that, that align with, with these type of, hey, here's how we can use the FAR instead of relying on special authorities like other transaction authorities to really streamline what we do. Yeah, no, I, I'm definitely seeing that in happening a lot more of the, the, what do you call them, the advisory down selects for sure. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a good direction for everybody, like you said, both sides. Save yeah. a lot of time and energy, and, you know, it's great. So in addition to this, so, you know, again, maybe this is a new administration too, but this concept of sustainable procurement. Mm-hmm. Kind of tell us more about what that means. So this is a a push by the current administration, um, recognizing that I think upwards of the government spends an upwards of six hundred billion dollars um, on federal procurement a year, which has a lot of purchasing power. 
And I think across the last several administrations, um, as the political climate makes bipartisan agreement harder to get things through Congress, uh, the executive is looking for ways to impact policy. And procurement is one of those um, avenues that is probably the most significant way they have to do that. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of one of several efforts you've seen of how do we attack climate change um, using procurement. So there have been a lot of um, ideas put out there, uh, multiple executive orders, um, a lot that still is TBD in terms of implementation. But back in November, um, the first big piece of it came out where uh, large contractors, I think over $50 million in annual revenue, have to do full greenhouse gas emissions reporting. Mm -hmm. And any... uh, firm over, I think it's $7.5 million in annual revenue has to do what they call scope one and scope two emissions, which is, you know, the emissions you produce and then, you know, a small subset of what you consume, mostly around like power, heating, those type of things. So that's going to be a challenge, I think, for procurement offices um, where they can get out in front of it because right now it's just more or less a reporting requirement, but understanding that some of those ideas, as I mentioned earlier, could get into, it does this become an evaluation factor in procurement? Mm-hmm. So there's an opportunity to kind of get the people with domain and data knowledge in the door now and, and looking at these. And it, obviously, it's a challenge for industry, especially, I think, smaller businesses You know that still are, are over $7.5 million in revenue mm-hmm. that now have another compliance consideration that they have to, you know, uh, conform to. And, and greenhouse gas emission measurement is is not the most straightforward. That's a hard one. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm curious how, how that's going to go. It's just, yeah, need more guidance, need more, I don't know. Like you said, a small business, they actually may have smaller emissions because they're small. Right. But they have they, you know, to pay somebody to figure out what are these emissions and how much are they to quantify yeah, it, it's that cost. And then, you know, if you're asked to, to evaluate your supply chain, you know, if I if I called up my mm. shared bookkeeping service and said, hey, tell me about your greenhouse gas emissions, they, they would laugh at yeah, me because, <laughs> they, they, you know, they're getting a small amount per year compared to yeah. like these large companies. So I think there's a lot of challenges there, but it's it's probably the hottest topic in procurement right now. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's also coming into financial reporting. They want to put that into, you know, and then like SEC and folks for... Or like even banks, all these different companies have to start reporting all the, you know, the emissions and such. And yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I understand it's part of the, you know, their initiatives at the in the, you know, the administration. So just be interesting to see how how they can implement that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know another one too. We didn't really have it on our thoughts here, but diversity and inclusion plans. Like I've seen yeah. those being required now too. Well, and, and that gets into I think another executive order from December of twenty twenty one. Uh, about using, I'm, I'm going to get the title slightly wrong, but I think it's using federal procurement to promote um, uh, diversity and equity. Mm-hmm. And so that was in large part a guidance document. And it basically acknowledged an issue that SBA and GAO have, have noticed for a few years now with you know what's called category management. And this uh-huh. is you know the concept of, hey, the government needs to understand what's buying across agencies and buy it smarter. 
Um, and some agencies do a fantastic job using data analysis like Air Force to, you know, come up with negotiation strategies, you know, estimates that have really taken down, you know, their, their cost for procurement. However, government-wide, the big thing it's resulted in are these best-in-class contract vehicles where a lot of them are small business-focused, and that's how the government does most of the small business purchasing. But to get on those, you typically need, you know, five to ten years, you know, $20 million past performances to be the most competitive to, to get onto these vehicles. So what it really has done is created a hunting license system where you've got your largest small businesses that have gotten more and more work share. It shows that the government's by percentage spending a lot on small businesses, but the small business industry base for the government has been shrinking by like 30 or 40 percent. So, you know, OFPP, which is the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, is going to likely issue some guidance this year around this concept of a new entrant and how agencies can be evaluated not just on small business spend, but creating opportunities for companies that are new to the federal marketplace or really haven't gotten that toehold yet. So that's that's a whole big question mark of what to expect um, coming out of there. But that's, again, another place where data literacy is going to be very important because whatever framework ultimately comes out of it, it's going to be looking at multiple factors and it's not just are you certified as small or, or aren't you. Yeah, and just a couple more questions for you. But one of them was, again, anything else about small business, things that you think either have been changing or, or you think should change or you know, improve? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's it's a bit of rehash um, for, you know, small business engagement from the two things we mentioned before. I think uh, one of the biggest barriers to entry, which is a term this administration uses when they talk about, you know, underserved communities and mm-hmm. being able to access uh, federal business is really um, information and that customer experience concept and helping people who aren't savvy government industry operators understand where they can plug in, where they can provide valuable services um, is absolutely key. Um, I, I think, you know, the evidence of an inefficient system is for all of those in industry, the amount of transaction costs that we pay just to get information, even as more mature firms, you know, we're paying for month, uh, monthly annual subscriptions to data aggregators. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's this kind of middleman transaction cost that's, that's proof that the system's inefficient and it's proof of this major barrier that, that new entrants have. Um, I think the other piece of that really is continuing um, to find a framework that goes beyond or in addition to these best-in-class vehicles to provide opportunities for a lot of these businesses, which have a lot to offer. Um, one personal example I'll give is, you know, in, in my network, people know that I'm, I'm the procurement guy. And we knew this private sector firm that was doing work predominantly uh, on the corporate side that had some amazing data capabilities. And they got a contract from one agency. That agency actually reached out saying, hey, I read about what you're doing. We can still source a contract. We'd love to have you. Mm -hmm. And they said, hey, this is great. Tom, can you tell us about how to build a federal business line? Because we think a lot of agencies could benefit from this. So I laid out everything. And their response was, 
you know, this is too complicated, it's mm. too expensive, and we're making too much money elsewhere. Right. And that's the thing is the government loses out on so much by having a bulky procurement system, and it's not because the law requires it. It's because there's still so much opportunity for innovation. And so often, and, and I'm living that small business experience, and, and we've got a lot of great partners, but you see, you know, a lot of times as a subcontractor, you provide services, and you've got some, some partners that are great and just put on 10%, which they earn from all the administrative parts. But there are other vendors out there marking up small business services by 40, 50%. And that's coming right out of the government's pocket. Yeah. And, you know, so I think there's just opportunity for both the public sector and private sector to really benefit from some of these these improvements focused at small business. Yeah, I just say, you know, a lot of, I mean, there large businesses recently, I know there's a lot of complaints that everything's small business now, small business set aside, but doesn't mean it's necessarily easier for the small business, right? As you're pointing out right now, because mm-hmm. I mean, they're all over the board. I mean, they're tiny, small, there's small that have been around forever. There's just a whole different range of variety of small businesses and it's, it's not easy. You know, and, and, and even with the things I'm saying, that that's one of the challenges in government, right? The second you create a rule, you move from the idealism behind the rule mm-hmm. to the pragmatism of meeting the rule. Right. And the same kind of government motivation that says, hey, we want to meet this mission, the second it's passed is like, okay, now we have to show that we met this metric. And that's where, yeah. you, you know, you get a little bit more of things, you know, opportunities to game the system because everyone is kind of looking to how they're measured and, and maybe not why they're being measured. Right. Well, I have one more question for you. This yep. is just kind of like uh, if you had your way, you know, what is something you'd really love to see this year as a, as a change to how procurement's working out there in the government? Um, I think the biggest change beyond, you know, I think some of the small business issues we just talked about is I would really like to see uh, the procurement workforce expand, um, mm-hmm. not just in number, but the individuals it attracts um, because sustainable procurement um, is a priority. You know, that workforce is going to need folks with uh, sciences background to help understand things. I think, you know, for all the reasons we talked about, having folks enter procurement from a technology background is, is very much needed. And as the government gets better data um, as it pursues this customer engagement, finance professionals are going to be needed to analyze that data and you know make sense of what is what is that true category management value we can add going beyond vehicles but taking a wide variety of financial data and coming up with strategies to negotiate the best value for government so i think that that's that's an area where um, the federal government can really kind of market itself better because this is an amazing career path uh it's done wonders for me in the two years that that i've been a part of it um as we mentioned at the top it helps with networking and i just think the word needs to get out more and i'm optimistic that with some of you know what we've seen from the office of federal procurement policy some of their direction that 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 might happen this year all right well tom thanks so much for being on the podcast today thanks for introducing us to this subject and uh Hope we'll have more of these conversations in the future. Great. Thanks so much, Paul. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. AGACGFM.org. You know where to go. Check out all the great stuff we have there. Podcasts, of course. Anything else you need to know about AGA. And, of course, we have a plethora of podcasts on the way, as always exciting stuff 
kind of keep your eyes and ears open. See what's coming soon. But until that next time, this is your host, Paul Marshall, signing off for Accountability Talks with AGA. Thank you.